Well, here's my question for you. You may have just thought through this a little while ago, but what is the biggest thing that you are currently praying about? Just take a minute. Think it shouldn't take too long probably. What is the, the current biggest thing that you are praying about in your life? Today's passage is a prayer, but it teaches us about prayer. It even teaches us that our biggest prayers may not be big enough. Even our grandest requests may not get it. Open up to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3, the passage we're going to be studying today is kind of a hinge, like kind of like a door hinge that turns and swings from Ephesians chapters 1 through 3 to Ephesians chapters 4 through 6. Let me give you a reminder where we've been in Ephesians chapter 1 through 3. God has lavished on us every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. He's chosen us, predestined us, adopted us, redeemed us, forgiven us, given us His Holy Spirit. That is some grandeur of the gospel. We are united to Christ, and we are united to one another. And all things are being united in Christ Jesus, Ephesians 1 says. Ephesians 3 says the manifold wisdom of God is displayed to the heavenly beings, to angels and demons, as as a transformed people of God, the church, walk out obedience to Him. And then we have our passage, then it swings this hinge turns to chapters 4 through 6 that we'll talk about in the coming weeks how the doctrine of chapter 1 through 3 is lived out chapters 4 through 6. Doctrine and practice. So chapters 4 through 6, how we talk and walk out obedience to God, how we flee the old self and put on the new self created in Christ Jesus, how we are imitators of God, walking in love and humility and patience and in gentleness. Doctrine and practice, doctrine, and practice. Chapters 1 through 3, chapters 4 through 6. But that hinge that holds these two together is our passage today. It started a couple weeks ago when Samuel taught through the first part of of this prayer, and I'm going to hit the last two sections today, or two uh, verses today. But if you'll look at Ephesians chapter 3, starting at verse 14. Ephesians 3, starting at verse 14. But we're going to hover over verse 20 and 21 today. But want to give us the runway of what's going on, what Paul is saying here. This is God's Word, Ephesians 3, starting at verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every or the whole family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. God bless the reading and preaching of His Word. As we hover over verses 20 and 21 today, here's kind of the big point. God is glorified as His people marvel 
at his work in their lives. God is glorified as his people marvel at his work in their lives. And it's not just his work in individual lives, though that's there, but that's not the primary focus. This is talking the life of us, the corporate, the the church. We marvel. This is plural when it's talking in Ephesians. Ephesians, the things we often think is like about me. I put on the armor of God. It's about us putting on the armor of God. There's a lot of plural yous going on that we think are singular yous. God's glorified as his people, us, marvel at his work in our lives. Another way to say that is God enjoys blowing up your categories. God enjoys blowing up your categories. Point number one, God is able to answer prayer. God is able to answer prayer. This text continues the prayer that we read starting in verse 14. He prays that the whole family of God be strengthened with God's power. He prayed that the church be rooted and grounded in love, having a deep lasting foundation in Christ. He prayed that the saints would have the fullness of God in his love, breadth, height, depth, and to know the love of God that surpasses knowledge, which I just love that. You know something that surpasses knowing. Okay. So the question then comes, how in the world will the people of God grasp all that? Like, how do you grasp a love that surpasses knowing? Verse 20, now to him who is able. How are you going to grasp any of this prayer? How is any of this going to be fulfilled? Only in this, now to him who is able. He is able. You are not able. God is able. You are not able to be rooted and grounded and then have your foundation in Christ apart from Christ. He is able. You are not able. You are not able to understand the breadth and length and height and depth of God's love by yourself. It's only in God, only in Christ Jesus our Lord. He is able, you are not able. Now to him who is able. Paul does the one thing that the church needs him to do in this prayer. Point the church outside of their own abilities. Outside of their own abilities and point them to Christ's ability to work in them. Church, we need to know we can't do it but God empowers us to do things that we don't even understand are capable. He is the one who is able. The church isn't, uh, isn't, isn't, isn't this exactly what we need. We shouldn't simply turn to God once we have exhausted all our capabilities. Once we've exhausted all our resources, we've seen our deficiencies, okay, now I'm going to go to God. We can do that individually. We can do that as a family. We can do that as a church. We got this. We can figure this out. And once we realize, oh, we don't got it, now we'll go to God. No. He is able now in the very first moments. And you don't even have that many capabilities. Paul boasts in his weakness over and over. He's just like, yeah, I don't got it. He actually realizes he don't got it. Some of us don't realize we don't got it. We've got to realize he is able. We need to live life fueled by the fact that God is able. God is ultimate. As Mary said, all things are possible with God. What is he able to do? 
Now to him who is able to do far more. Just stop there for a second. He's able to do far more. We don't have an impotent God, but an infinite God. We don't have an inferior God, but a superior God. We don't have a weary God, but a God who never sleeps or slumbers. Our God is able to do far more. That can be translated infinitely more. But Paul goes even further here, which I don't know how you go further than infinitely more, but he does. He goes infinitely more, far more abundantly. Our God is lavish. He's abundant. He gives every spiritual blessing. He is a generous God. He gives without measure. As Luke chapter 6, 38 says, I love this. Jesus says, given it will be given to you. How? Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. Now imagine, and this is probably what was being thought when people are talking about that in Luke chapter 6. Imagine just the market 2,000 years ago. There aren't these scales, like uh, electronic scales to make sure the measurements are equal because people could like do fraud by measure, measuring weights and, and odd things like that. But God says, here's how I answer prayer. Here's how I give to my kids good measure. His scales are true. Pressed down and shaken together. There are no air bubbles in there. If you're getting grain or something in the market, like there's no fraudulent thing in the bottom. You know, all those like, it just drives me crazy. You get like these packages of things, like, like, like chips, and you open them, and you're like, where did the chips go? Like they're like, you got to reach all the way down to find any chips in there. I paid for a lot of air. That drives me crazy. That's not what happens here. It's pressed down. It's shaken together. It's not like one of those cookout milkshakes. Anybody like cookout milkshakes? Those are so good. Makes me hungry. Um, but you, you take those two bites on top, and then you see that hole down in the middle. And you're like, why don't I have ice cream in that hole? Or for me, you know, where's not just my ice cream, but where's the candy that's in that hole? Like, it needs to be there. No, that's not how God gives. He's, he's not, there's no air bubbles in there. It's pressed down. It's shaken together. Then it says, running over into your lap. You can't contain the abundance of God, church. It's infinitely more. And let's remember, this is talking plural. This is talking to the church. It's not just individual. Far more abundantly, infinitely more than what? Than we ask. Friends, God wants to use his church, his people, in ways we don't even know how to ask. He's far more generous than we even know to pray. Our requests don't even limit the heart of the Father toward his children. He works in his children far more than they ask. God's doing far more in the church than you even know to ask, than I even know to ask. But not just ask. Look at the next word. Or think. Like God does far more abundantly than we can even think. God's able to do far more abundantly than all we think in his church. Oh, friends, how feeble are our thoughts of God? How feeble and wandering are our thoughts? We look at God's people and we see weakness. We see foibles. If you read C.S. Lewis's Screwtape Letters, he just has this imaginary idea of this demon named Screwtape who writes to, I think it's his nephew from what I remember, Woodworm, his nephew, to work on his patient. The patient's the person. 
that woodworm's supposed to kind of antagonize. And it's funny because as you read through that, he's like, yeah, you know, let him go to church. Like, he's really not worried about it. Just as he sits in church, let him get really annoyed with everybody. You ever been that? You're probably, some of you are right there. You're like, I am so annoyed right now. You don't have to raise your hand. It's okay. I remember, I was thinking about this, and I remember one Sunday years ago sitting there, and I hope no one's doing this, but um, this, this wife was sitting right in front of me, and she's like scratching the back of her husband's like, like this the whole time, and it was just driving me crazy. I was like, oh my gosh, please stop doing that. And so there's probably a sermon going on, and all I'm seeing is scratching, scratching, scratching. It was just driving me crazy. That's exactly what Woodworm's talking about judgments, lies, annoyance. Sometimes that's how we think of the church. That is not how Paul's thinking about the church here. That is not how the Bible portrays the church. Do we have tons of foibles and annoying things? Absolutely. Probably more than we want to admit. But friends, God does far more with his church than we ask and far more than we think Just think about the ways God has worked in his church for 2,000 years. Lives have been saved as the good news of the kingdom has transferred people from death to life. Gospel mission has gone forth in multiple languages. The New Testament has been translated in 1,551 languages in the earth. Gospel mission. Hospitals have been built to care for medical needs. Colleges and universities have been started to train and disciple leaders. Some of them have gone train wrecks since then, but but those have been started to train. Women have been saved out of prostitution. Children have, have been given forever homes through adoption. Broken families have been made whole. Churches have been planted. The good news has been proclaimed. Babies have been rescued from murder. Clean water systems have been donated. Gospel proclamation and gospel demonstration has gone forward for the last 2,000 years. Name another organization that has existed that long. There's not one. God has done far more abundantly than we ask or think through his church. And he's doing stuff in our church that we haven't asked or even thought about. Friends, we've planted a church. We're praying to plant more churches. We talked about that in a family meeting a couple weeks ago. We have a youth ministry that's pouring into the next generation, and they love God, and they love one another, and who knows what God's going to do with them. We have a women's ministry, Women of Hope, who are helping ladies be grounded in the Word. Praise God. We have an abundance of men working toward pastoral ministry that we hope to equip, and whether they're here or we send them out, we just say, Lord, do what you want to do. We have land given to us, facilities given to us, We did not ask for all this, and even when we did ask for it, we thought it was a long shot. We were just like pie in the sky. And I think our prayer often needs to be, would I believe help my unbelief? I believe help my unbelief, because God does more, infinitely more, than we ask or think. So friends, how should we acknowledge this verse, and how should this verse affect our prayer lives? What's the big prayer that God's calling us to pray as a church? 
Like individually, obviously we pray, but us to pray as just what's God calling us to pray that he, he, he knows and he calls us to ask. What is God calling us to pray as a church, but also individually as families? He can do far more abundant than we can ask or even think. And you're like, well, I can't even think about it. Well, sure, but let's just go for it. Let's ask him to help us. We're, we've got the Spirit. Jesus right now is interceding for us. He's praying for you now, Scripture says. He loves to make intercession for his people. So just join him, and maybe the Spirit will, will help us to pray what he wants us to pray. And I think this is closely tied to just having that crazy obedience to God. Like crazy obedience, when, when God calls us to pray crazy prayers, they're not crazy to him, but it feels crazy. There are people on the other side of those prayers, they're like, do you really want me to do that, God? And that person's like, Lord, please help somebody have a heart for this or to do that to whatever it might be. And that these people have the crazy obedience to answer the crazy prayers that God wants to use in his people. Friends, I've seen this so many times. That's one of the joys in pastoral ministry is I get to be like the third person sometimes and like that person's praying crazy and that person's praying crazy and like that person's like, I need to do this. That person's praying like, Lord, help that happen. And like that, and you're just like, hey, boop, boop. And you're like watching it and God do it. God stir his people to love one another. Friends, God is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. But how? The verse continues, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us. God is working within and through his people. God is working through his church by his power. What is that power? Ephesians 1 talks about the promised Holy Spirit. Verse 19, the power towards us. Uh, chapter 3, verse 16, it'll be on the screen. He may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being. God does far more than we can ask or think by empowering us with himself. That's incredible. The third person of the Trinity dwells in us. He is in us. We are no longer orphans. We're not, no longer on our own. We're no longer enslaved. We're no longer defending ourselves. We are God's temple, his holy place, his people, his possession, his family, indwelt by the Spirit. What does God do through his people? We've got to consider that and look at the broader context of chapter 3 to think through and pull some application of what does God's Spirit do through his people. We find within the context of chapter 3 of Ephesians that he unifies his people. In the culture around us that says everybody should be hating one another, or we're only unified around central little core things in our online group or whatever, and we hate everybody else, like, we can actually disagree on things and be in the same church family because we agree on the one thing, the gospel of Jesus Christ. The dividing walls of hostility are broken down in Christ's flesh. 
So the first thing I think he empowers us with by the Spirit is to be unified. We're empowered to be unified. Second thing, we find that he empowers his people to care so much about others that they're willing to sacrifice their own comforts. Where do I pull that from? In chapter 3, Paul says, verse 1, that he's a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. Verse 13, Paul says, what I am suffering for you. In the context here, Paul's saying, I'm laying my life down for other people. Only the Spirit can empower that. Friends, the Spirit empowers sacrifice. The Spirit empowers us to lay down our lives for one another. Friends, how's that going? Laying down our lives for one another. That's not the American dream. That's the gospel of the kingdom. In third application, we find that God empowers his people to know his love, to have their foundation rooted and grounded in Christ's love, filled with the fullness of God. So we're empowered to know God's love. So I think, yep, you got it there. So we're empowered to to unify, we're empowered to sacrifice, and I meant to modify this, we're empowered to know God's love. Yes, we're empowered to love, but that's not the text here. We're empowered to know God's love, rooted, grounded, breadth, height, length, depth. So friends, how's this going? Do you believe God is able to do this? Do you believe that God is able to unify you with saints you are currently struggling with? Do you believe that? Do you believe that he's able to help you lay down your life again and again, moms, and again? For your family, for your roommate, for your extended family, for your coworkers? Do you believe that God is able to empower you by his spirit? This isn't you. This isn't you pulling your, your own, I always mess this analogy up, pulling your boots up by your bootstraps. I don't have boots or bootstraps. I wear tennis shoes. But, but like just self-will, self-generating. No, it's God's empowering work. Do you believe God is able to take you deeper into his love beyond anything you've ever known? You may think back to a time in college or a time in high school where, I mean, I knew God's love. There was just this, this joy and contentment and knowing, and like, well, well that was back then. Now I just kind of just know God, sort of. Life's different now. No, there's a depth of God's love that you don't know, and God's willing to take you there height, breadth, depth, to know the fullness of God. Friends, what is the specific way, just one of these, what's the specific way God wants to meet you today and empower you today by his spirit? Don't take all three. All three are great. All three kind of intermingle together. But what's one of these where you could just pray, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief, help me be unified, or help me know your love more, or help me to lay down my life. John Stott says it this way, talking about verse 20 and 21. He says, the power comes from him. I love this. The glory must go to him. That's the summary of this passage. The power comes from him. So it comes down. The glory 
goes to him, it goes up. So second point today is this. God is worthy of forever glory. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, what does it say? To him be glory. God empowers his people for unthinkable tasks, all for his glory. We are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. He gets the glory, we get the joy. How many times have you served someone, blessed someone, been generous to someone, and you walk away with just that kind of inner smile, or maybe it's expressed on your face. You're like, I was made for this. He's glorified and we're satisfied. Verse 21 says, To him be glory in the church. The people of God glorify God like a lighthouse, shining the gospel of the kingdom to the neighborhoods and the nations, sharing the love of Jesus Christ together, that we are sinners But Jesus saved us. He redeemed us. He adopted us into his family. We didn't earn this. We didn't put our resume out. We didn't do enough good work to climb the ladder. No, we are saved by grace through faith. It is not a result of works. None of us can boast in this, Ephesians 2 says. We need a Savior, and we have a Savior. We need a King, and we have a King, so we exalt him. All glory be to Christ. To him be glory in the church. We've entitled this series through Ephesians, The Glory of Christ in His Church. Because we continually see Christ working in His church. That's what Ephesians is all about. The church is the centerpiece of God's work in the world. He empowers His church with the Holy Spirit. He works abundantly through His church. The analogies throughout Scripture, we are the bride, we are the body, we are the household, we're partakers of The promise, God empowers us and he receives glory. But note verse 21, to him be glory in the church and in Christ. Peter O'Brien says this, God's glory in the church cannot be separated from his glory in Christ Jesus. That's interesting, isn't it? Just let me read that again and just mentally think, think about this. God's glory in the church cannot be separated from his glory in Christ Jesus. So most of you are like, whoa, 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 I love Jesus. Jesus is awesome. The church, oh, not so much about the church. And, and he says, no, this all goes together, guys. Why? Because we're united to Christ. John Stott summarizes it this way. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus together, get this, in the body and in the head, in the bride, and in the bridegroom, in the community of peace, and in the peacemaker. You see how it goes together, us and our understanding of Christ? We are united to Christ, body and head, bride and groom, community of peace, and peacemaker. But it gets better. It gets broader. It gets grander. Continue with verse 21. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Notice Paul has in mind both his current audience, the ones he's writing to, the Ephesians, 
but also the future generations, the glory that reverberates for generations. And let's note that, that as he's writing this, it's almost 2,000 years ago on the other side of the world that he's writing. So here we are speaking a foreign language to Paul on the other side of the world talking about the glory of Christ. Let's just note that. Like this is not an American book. Jesus was not white. He did not speak English. Like glory to Christ. Pastor Kent Hughes states that the glory from the church will not stop. But this all generations, this, this growing is as more and more people come to know Christ and they will be around his throne saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Some of us have family and friends right now numbered among the saints around the throne. Like just worshiping and loving Jesus full satisfaction in Jesus. No more illness, no more sin, no more struggle, whatever it is, and they are worshiping Jesus. They're counted in this generation, these generations. And we sung the song earlier, it says, when saints of old have lined the way, retelling triumphs of his grace, we hear their calls and hunger for the day when with Christ we stand in glory. Oh, friends, they're cheering us on. Hebrews chapter 11 says they're cheering us on. Like we're running and they're in the stands, the saints of old, and they're like, go, go, there's not much longer. And we're like, give me some Gatorade. You know, we're dying. When saints of old have lined the way, retelling triumphs of his grace, understand his grace. We hear their calls and hunger for the day when with Christ we stand in glory. And get the last word that Paul says in this passage. Amen. It is true. This is a doxology. This is a praise. But amen is not just a throwaway word. It's saying, I believe this to be true. This is true. So here's my question as we close out this passage. Do you believe it's true? Do you believe this, verses 20 and 21, are true? And does, does my life, does your life bear witness to that? Do you believe God is able? Do you believe God is able to do far more abundantly than you ask or think in his church and in his people? Do you believe God is worthy of glory? So I think there could be kind of three different sections of people in responding to this. First is this, you're like, yes, I believe that, and that's awesome. We praise God for your faith and belief and God working in you. I pray that fuels you all the more. As you read verse 20 and 21, you are fueled to more prayer, bigger prayer, faith-filled prayer, knowing he is able, walking out obedience, sometimes crazy obedience, whatever he calls you to do. So I think that's one group. Just encourage you to walk that out. Think another group, maybe you're saying, yes, I believe that that's factually true. But honestly, you have hesitations. I've grown up believing this is true. I know I should say yes, that it's true, but it's just, it doesn't feel true. It feels hard. 
Friends, I would encourage you in that same prayer I've prayed already for us today. I believe. Help my unbelief. I believe. Help my unbelief. And and friends, this is where we take time to repent, where we're saying God's word is lying. Because if we don't believe God's word is true, when it speaks it, and we're like, I don't actually believe that's true, we're saying liar. Like, let's just call it what it is. Liar, God. Your, your word's a lie. If we believe that, we need to repent. We're believing a lie. We're listening to the whispers of Satan. It's, we're, we're believing fleshly desires. We need to repent of that and say, your word is true. I believe this to be true. Even when it's hard, I'm going to let this guide my thoughts rather than my thoughts and circumstances and feelings guide what I believe to be true. That's the difference between exegesis, bringing bringing it out, and eisegesis, bringing our culture and our our ideas into Scripture. Friends, if that's you, if you factually know that this is true, but you actually don't deep down, friends, let's go from unbelief to belief. God calls us from unbelief to belief. My heart for our church right here, unbelief to belief where we're believing lies because we all do it. It's not just you and me. It's all of us in here. There's things we, we believe about God that are lies because they're not according to Scripture. Let Scripture be our guide. And some of you may say, no, I, I don't believe that's true. I don't believe God is able to do far more abundantly. And it may be actually not true for you because you don't know Jesus. He's not able to do far more abundantly than ask, you ask or think because you don't have a relationship with him. You are far from God. His power isn't at work in you because you don't have the Holy Spirit. Scripture tells us that we are all sinners. We are hostile to God. But if we repent of our sins and trust in Jesus' death on our behalf, we can receive forgiveness and we can have new life. We can be indwelt with the promised Holy Spirit. Friends, if that's you, we ask that you would turn from your sins and toward, turn toward Christ today. So let's just end today just thinking on that. I hope you've already thought that as I've been exploring those three kind of categories. But just consider, do I believe this is true? You can reread verse 20 and 21 as we close. We're just going to take a quiet minute. I'm not even going to ask anybody to play keyboard right now. We're just going to take a quiet minute.